You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. The Office of President of the United States. For democracy belongs to us all. A government for our tomorrows. Where? I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear. We gather because we have chosen hope over fear. Because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. Meet this moment as the United States of America. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live and our 2024 election series. My name is Aaron Blake. I'm a senior political reporter and writer for The Fix. I'm also the author of the new Campaign Moment newsletter, which I encourage people to check out on our website. Today, I am joined by Kentucky Secretary of State Michael Adams. While many of you may be familiar with another Secretary of State, Georgia's Brad Raffensperger, Secretary Adams has also been rather outspoken about election denial and won a Republican primary in 2023 by more than 20 points. Secretary Adams, welcome to Washington Post Live and thanks for being with us. Thanks, my pleasure. Uh, Secretary Adams, uh, can you just talk a little bit? You were uh, first elected in 2019, took office in early 2020. How have your day-to-day duties and your life changed over that last four plus years? Well, uh, to give you a little perspective, when I first ran in 2019, the hardest part of my campaign was explaining to voters what the office even did. Uh, Secretary of State was not a high-profile position in in my state, uh, in most states, and the world changed really, really quickly. I got elected in 2019. I got sworn in in January, and two months later, COVID hit, and then uh, all of a sudden, uh, it seemed like everybody knew what Secretaries of State did, and I think that's overall a a positive, uh, that voters are now more aware of these offices. They're following election news a lot more closely. They know their rights uh, are at stake. And so they're holding people like me uh, accountable. I, I certainly welcome that. Uh, the day-to-day has been kind of a up and down. Uh, certainly there have been some kind of harrowing moments. Uh, those tend to happen more in presidential uh, elections. Uh, we just had a very competitive race for governor here uh, last year, but emotions were pretty calm. And now we're going into a, a presidential and I can tell already that emotions are higher. And uh, we had uh, a bomb scare here at the Capitol just a couple of days uh, in, into the year, uh, uh, called into our office and had to close the Capitol. So I hope that doesn't augur poorly uh, for what we're going into this year. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, the recent bomb scares. The, those were happening around the country, a pretty um, uh, remarkable set of circumstances. I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about some of those other harrowing moments that you, you referenced, especially for, for you personally. Yeah, you know, uh, it's uh, I'm the first. Uh, this is the first uh, office I've ever held. I never ran for anything else uh, previously. I I practiced law in in Kentucky, and and so I've been around in politics a long time, but I hadn't actually been in the position myself. And it was quite a transition to go from being a, a just a, a regular, almost uh, anonymous uh, kind of guy who could go to the grocery or the drugstore or to church or anywhere and and just kind of be a regular person, and then suddenly, just months later. Uh, I'm uh, I'm a flashpoint uh, for for very emotional people uh, who who believe things that aren't true and want to come up to me and make sure that I know about it uh, and hold me accountable. 
uh, that's been it's been weird for me uh, to have trouble going to the grocery or, or the drugstore or other places and and have to build in time for people to come up and, and challenge me. It's been really hard on my family. Uh, my daughter had to take our uh, campaign bumper sticker off her car. Uh, my wife did the same thing. They, they would get uh, confronted uh, sometimes. And so that's that's been uh, pretty tough. You know, COVID especially, going into 2020, uh, we had a lot of demonstrations here at the state capitol. They were aimed primarily at our at our Democratic governor, who was perceived as going too far in, in forcing closures and so forth. Uh, but some of those same people who were toting uh, semi-automatic uh, rifles and, and so forth, they'd circulate over to the governor's uh, uh, press room, those uh, those windows outside that press room and make demonstrations toting their weapons. Then they come around to my office. They didn't like what I was doing either with respect to making sure we could vote safely in a pandemic, expanding access, making absentee voting easier, having uh, more voting days and so forth. And so it's it, it was quite a quite a transition for me to go from being a total nobody to suddenly there's people with machine guns outside my office. I actually wanted to talk to you about that. Um, you mentioned the expansion of voting rights that uh, took place in Kentucky before the 2020 election. Uh, a lot of those changes were made permanent afterwards. You worked with Democratic Governor Bashir on that. Um, this came at a time when a lot of Republicans were talking about the, the supposed danger of absentee ballots and that leading to voter fraud. Um, when you entered into these things, did you have any idea that it would be that divisive with members of your own party? And, and how did you find that you were able to get something like this passed in a, in a very red state, which, which uh, got overwhelming majorities in the state legislature? Well, to, to put this into perspective, when I first worked out an agreement with, with our governor, uh, we got a, a flash poll. It wasn't our poll, uh, but we got a poll that showed that overwhelmingly Democrats and independents appreciated what we had done in expanding voting hours and methods. Uh, but but two to one, Republicans were were against it. It was just months after I had been first elected, and I thought my career was probably over. Uh, so I, I worked really hard on the communications side to explain what we were doing and why it was secure, uh, that we used the same integrity protocols on early voting that we use on election day. There's there's no difference between election day and pre-election day. It's the same sort of checks and balances and, and so forth. And uh, with absentee voting, I went out there and made the case that absentee voting was a new thing. It was in our state constitution as a ride that voters had. Uh, it wasn't something brand new that we invented and we had protocols there too that we weren't going uh, to alter. We were going to make sure that those were all secure. And what we actually found, and this is maybe the best news that I've had in, in my four-year uh, stint in this job, is that people are actually more open-minded than sometimes we realize. I think to some degree I underestimated a lot of folks in my state by thinking that they would only get their information from uh, from social media or you know, from from uh, people who like to uh, transmit conspiracy theories, uh, if you actually go out and make an argument, which is what I did, explaining how early voting was secure, how absentee voting was secure, people will actually listen. And so we went from in April of 2020, uh, two thirds of Republicans being against me to actually in our in our primary election during covid, 60 percent of Republicans voted by absentee ballot. Uh, so that's a pretty big shift, and it's because we went out and made the arguments. And something that I've I've tried to convey to other Republicans uh, who see the world the way that I do, uh, other secretaries of state, 
uh, legislators as well in other states is don't be afraid to know your stuff and go out and make your case. And people are more open-minded than we realize. Uh, there is a lot of gullibility out there, but there's also a lot of open-mindedness. If you go out and challenge some of these myths and explain what you're actually doing to make sure these elections are secure, you'll get a fair hearing. And people will actually nod along and go along with you. And not only will they accept what you're doing, they'll actually utilize it themselves. If I hadn't convinced Republicans who supported Donald Trump that we that we could trust absentee voting and early voting, they wouldn't have used it in 2020 and our election would have crashed. It's really important, not just that we make changes to make sure people can vote, but we actually convince the voters that they can be trusted. Yeah, I wanted to piggyback on that a little bit. You, you talk about how when you talk to people about these things, you can convince them. Uh, one thing that a lot of people in your party haven't been convinced of is the legitimacy of the 2020 election. Uh, you've said uh, the biggest threat is not fraud. It's the people who are claiming election fraud. You said that last year. We had an election this week in Iowa. Uh, two out of three people who voted in that in the Republican caucuses said that they did not believe that Biden's 2020 win was legitimate. Uh, I wonder what you make of that number and uh, and if that gives you pause about, you know, things that you've said before, trying to convince people otherwise that this thing has really persisted more than three years beyond 2020. Well, uh, certainly really troubling. I think it's, for obvious reasons, highly problematic. Uh, what I found, though, is in my state, the numbers are similar. Uh, there was a poll here uh, last year that showed that 70% of, of Republicans in Kentucky thought that Joe Biden wasn't the legitimate winner of the 2020 election. Uh, I've been very very blunt uh, from from uh, day one, really, uh, that uh, I don't believe that Donald Trump won the 2020 election and Joe Biden won and, and he's the president. I, I didn't vote for him, but but he's the president and we should respect that. Uh, and uh, but again, what I found is even in my state where seven out of 10 Republican voters disagree with me on that issue, I still managed to win my uh, primary very comfortably by talking about what we were doing that was very practical to make sure that we didn't have fraud in Kentucky elections, just common sense things like getting our voter rolls uh, cleaned up. We had a, a lawsuit some years ago that I think correctly uh, alleged that uh, my predecessor didn't keep the rolls uh, accurate. So we worked really hard on that. Uh, we've done common sense things in terms of uh, putting surveillance on ballot boxes and, and so forth when they're not being used so we don't have any sort of tampering. Uh, we passed a law to prevent any of our ballot scanners to be connected to the internet. We hadn't ever connected them to the internet, but having a law that said that, I think put some people at ease. So we've done some things to counter this and show people that in Kentucky, uh, they can trust the elections and, and be comfortable. Now, I'll, I'll confess I have limited ability to persuade people that Arizona does the same thing in Pennsylvania and other states. And honestly, I'm not sure that I have the capacity to persuade everybody that every election is great, but I focus on it at least educating voters in my state about what we're doing here. You mentioned the the primary that you won last year by more than 20 points. You were one of the secretaries of state who were viewed as insufficiently supportive of Donald Trump's election challenges. There was a uh, a group called America First Secretaries of State, which run a lot of ran a lot of primary challengers against these candidates. And I think that one thing that uh, people may not realize that they see a lot of election denying Republicans who won in Senate primaries or House primaries. Uh, but in these secretaries of, of states races, these campaigns against incumbents especially were very unsuccessful. Uh, you won, Brad Raffensperger won, 
people who are a little bit more low profile but didn't kind of toe uh, the Trump lion on some of these things were reelected. Um, does that say anything to you about kind of the true nature of this movement? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, do are people saying that they believe these things, but it's not actually a huge point of emphasis for them and, and they're willing to reelect people like you? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think part of this is that the people who are truth tellers on, on elections tend to be better informed. And I think we tend to be better at explaining our case. We tend to be more trusted by the business community uh, because we're just, I think, more, more uh, respectable uh, candidates. And so we probably have a fundraising advantage in many cases. A lot of the people that take uh, outlandish positions just turn out to not be very good candidates. They, they make bad decisions. They aren't aren't effective uh, fundraisers. And so I think that problem largely solves itself. Uh, I will note that I've been uh, the chair of the Republican caucus of secretaries of state for about a year now. And and I was on the uh, executive committee uh, for years before that. Uh, we made a decision to not get in these races in, in Nevada, uh, in, in Arizona, in some of these places with these more uh, outlandish candidates. We thought that was bad for our brand. And, and we also, we just didn't think that we should be out there uh, supporting them. So I, I wanna thank them, I think uh, as well, uh, the the national committees uh, for at least not engaging in favor of these candidates and making them have to fight on their own. And of course the Democrats have spent quite a bit of money to make sure that these folks don't win as well. Um, we got a question from our audience that I'd like to ask you. It's from Alan Parsons uh, from your home state. He asks, how can confidence be restored in our election process, given the sheer volume of false, misleading and discredited claims of ballot machine tampering, ballot stuffing and harvesting? And if I could just kind of add to that question, uh, what are the roles here for both members of your own party and also for Democrats? How can they make that argument better? I think it's a two part problem. Uh, I think it requires some work on, on both sides. Uh, I think on my side, we've got to be much better about uh, educating people, uh, separating fact from fiction. Uh, and so we've got an FAQ on our website uh, addressing election myths and, and laying out the myth and then the fact. Uh, we, we communicate constantly, uh, whether it's through the media or my travel around the state speaking to audiences. You know, here are the things that you're being told that aren't true, and here we can prove it. And I, it takes courage. And you know, candidly, the election officials are, are, I think, much better at this than maybe a lot of the legislative candidates or the candidates for other offices. And I think the difference is I'm in the customer service business, and people hold me accountable if voting isn't convenient. And so if you let people curtail voting access based on conspiracy theories, it ultimately comes back on me. So I've got, I think, a self-interest, an interest of my office in going out there and shooting this stuff down. But I think people running for other offices as Republicans or otherwise don't have that same incentive. They just kind of leave it, leave it alone and don't want to touch it. It's a third rail. And so that's that's part of the problem. Uh, I will add that I, I think the Democrats could be better players here, too. Uh, we did see a number of races in 2022 where uh, the DGA and groups like that went out and spent money to elevate uh, far out. Uh, Republican candidates or, or more often to undermine mainstream uh, Republican candidates in the hopes that they would pick up seats in November uh, for Democrats. And so I think they have some responsibility here, too, to do better. Uh, there was a, a recent CBS YouGov poll which showed a near majority of Americans think that there will be violence uh, regarding future presidential election losses. Um, 
I wonder, you know, you talked somewhat about uh, some of the harrowing incidences in your uh, term as Secretary of State. How how real do you think that is uh, after January 6th, that we would have a repeat or something even uh, even larger than that? Well, I think it's I think it's very real. Uh, I'm not predicting it at, at this point, uh, but, but I think six shocked a lot of us, myself included, about how low we could really go in America. Uh, I will say this, and this is not a, a positive observation. Uh, yeah, I, I get death threats. My staff, my office, we get threats, but we're not unique in that. It's not just happening to the election officials. This is something that's pervasive now in America. Gosh, we've had health health officials getting threats. We've had school board members getting threats. Uh, this is a larger problem than just the elections. I wonder if you can expand on that, the, the threats that go not to people in super high profile positions um, uh, like you and governors and other office holders. Um, but what impact does, does those kinds of things have on election workers, the ability to hire and train people to run these elections? Is that um, something that you're working through right now? And what are your reflections on that? Well, I've got some good news and some bad news on, on that. Uh, we did uh, pass a law a couple of years ago to increase legal protections uh, for our poll workers. Uh, I, I'm proud of that. I, I really wanted that law. We got it. Uh, but I'll be very candid. Uh, we've not seen evidence in Kentucky of our of our poll workers uh, being threatened. We still want to make it clear to people that we wanted to volunteer that they were going to be kept safe. Uh, we've not seen much of that, but we have seen a decline in interest in being a poll worker and also a decline in interest uh, from locations, voting locations, offering themselves up to be voting locations. Uh, when I was first elected in 2019, I was asked to testify to the legislature before I was even sworn in. And I told them the biggest crisis that we face is in having enough poll workers. Uh, that's way more true now than it was. Uh, COVID didn't help and all the crazy out there uh, has not helped. But the biggest problem is just a generational decline in volunteering. And, and this too, is it's not unique to elections. We see people disengaging. Uh, we see them not volunteering in their communities. Uh, we see them not civically uh, motivated. And so uh, this is all the election issues we're having are largely downstream from other cultural factors. Uh, it's not just getting personnel uh, to help though. It's also getting locations. We've seen a decline in locations offering themselves up. Uh, schools are a lot less willing now uh, to be voting locations. Uh, and it, it's uh, unfortunately uh, because in many cases they're concerned about security. Uh, they're very nervous about having uh, voting during a, a time when there are children on, on campus. Uh, on election day, we have some ability to, to close schools for that, but we need more than one day to vote. We need early voting and the schools would be a great part of that, but they've been very resistant. Uh, you know, candidly, they just don't want to have some random person in the general public able to come on the premises and scope the place out and become potentially an active shooter. So that they've got security reasons uh, for being dubious about volunteering. Uh, something else we've seen is churches have started uh, quitting. In 2022, we had an abortion uh, amendment on our ballot, constitutional amendment, and it was very close. And there was an active pro-choice, active pro-life effort. And a lot of our churches take one or other uh, side of that issue and had some materials on their premises and voters got bent out of shape that they thought that their their voting center was was political for or against the amendment. And so the churches also uh, begged off. You're actually asking people to, you know, most I don't have a, 
thousands of buildings under my purview, the vast majority of our locations don't belong to the state. They belong to local governments or even private institutions. It's getting harder and harder to, for them to see some sort of benefit uh, in offering up their location for, for a day or several days. So those are, those are both challenges we have. And I'll close with this as well. Uh, the Biden administration has stepped up enforcement of the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act in a way that's been unhelpful to us in Kentucky in having enough locations to vote. Uh, we had some long lines in one of our counties in 2022 uh, because the, the local government was uh, challenged by the administration and told you need to close a bunch of these locations. They're not ADA compliant. Well, I certainly care about ensuring that uh, the ADA community uh, can vote, but the answer is not to just come in at the last minute and force poll closures. Uh, so I am I am a little concerned about our ability to have a robust array of locations going into this year, because even in my state, where I've pushed early voting, got it enacted, and I'm real proud of it, the vast majority of voters, including Democrats, still vote on election day. So we have to have a, a robust offering of locations on election day itself. I'm going to ask you one more question about um, uh, national politics before we focus a little bit more on Kentucky. Um, one thing that a lot of secretaries of state right now are dealing with are efforts to disqualify Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot. We've, of course, seen efforts in Colorado where the state Supreme Court disqualified him. Uh, Maine Secretary of State, a Democrat, uh, moved to disqualify him. These issues appear to be headed for the Supreme Court, which will uh, settle these matters. I know you've said that the Supreme Court, you've praised the Supreme Court for taking this up and providing some guidance, but I wonder if you have some kind of personal thoughts on the validity of this effort uh, as somebody who is responsible for uh, enforcing state election law in your state. Well, I do on, on two levels. You know, Number one, as Secretary of State, I, I'm a minister, if you will. I administer things. Uh, I'm, I am a secretary. Uh, I have ministerial functions. Uh, I do have some policy authority, uh, but it's limited, especially in deciding who does and doesn't get on the ballot. That's not for me to determine. Uh, it, I'm an elected official and I run myself. I shouldn't have the power to disqualify my opponent, right? Unless there's a legitimate bona fide challenge, I can go to court. But I shouldn't have the ability to decide in my state who does and doesn't get to run for office. That should be up to the voters. So on, on one level, I don't think it's appropriate for Secretary of State to make those decisions, at least not under my state's law. Uh, but number two, in, in my reading of the Constitution and, and the history uh, of, of where that part of the Constitution came from, uh, I, I don't think it was aimed at the sort of situation that we're talking about. And I also don't think that the decision was granted to state election officials to decide who has or hasn't committed or engaged in insurrection. So, uh, you know, my personal view, I haven't made a big stink about it. My personal view is it was wrong uh, for uh, Colorado and, and Maine uh, to take that decision. And I think certainly the Supreme Court taking this case and setting one standard for the whole country is beneficial. Let's go back to Kentucky. And, and we talked about uh, your primary campaign. Also, in the general election, and this is something that really brought you to my attention, uh, along with the election results that night, where I believe you were the top vote getter among statewide Republicans in Kentucky. Among, um, among all candidates, yeah. You. One of the things that you did in advance of Election Day was you actually ran an ad that featured the praise that you got um, from Governor Bashir, the Democratic governor. Uh, you talked about how you guys had worked together um, to expand voting rights. The, the thing that struck me about this ad was 
this is a Republican running in a red state. You were probably a very big favorite in that race. Governor Bashir, you know, had a had a much tougher race on his hands. What was the thinking behind featuring that late in the campaign uh, with the Democratic governor? Well, uh, two things. You know, number one, there is a a, a wing of of Republicans, and I have a, a close primary in my state. And uh, you know, I I, I got sixty four percent, which is pretty good. But I also didn't get thirty six percent. And there were Republicans I I thought that would not vote for me. Uh, because of, of angst about how I've done my job. And so I had to find a way to make up for that by picking up people who uh, were Democrats or independents. And what I found in my polling was I was consistently getting a minimum of a quarter of Democrats uh, and about 25% of Democrats were undecided. So I, I could potentially get half of uh, the Democratic vote and I was polling well with independents as well. Uh, but the, the larger observation I made was that the middle is bigger than sometimes we think it is. There really is a middle in Kentucky. We've split tickets in every election for constitutional office uh, in the uh, 21st century. You know, we had uh, Attorney General Andy Bashir under Governor Matt Bevan. Uh, they were different parties. We've had lots of split election results. Heck, we voted for Mitch McConnell and Bill Clinton at the same time. We voted for Wendell Ford, a Democratic senator, and Ronald Reagan at the same time. So there is a middle still, uh, still in Kentucky. Uh, we're 46% registered Republican, 44% Democratic, 10% Independent. And my view was, I'm going to get most Republican votes, uh, but I also want to pick up some Democratic Independent votes as kind of a you know kind of a Plan B to make sure I get over the top and get the votes I needed. The the thing I wrote about you after the the election was was noting that you had the highest vote share among statewide Republicans in Kentucky. Um, this is actually a story that we've seen in a lot of states. When you have Republicans who are willing to speak out on on election denial and things like this that aren't you know going to the extremes on some of these issues, they generally do very well in the general election. They may have to worry about a primary like you did. Uh, but they're better for it in the general election. And I wonder if there's a part of you that wants Republicans nationwide to look at your race and, and races like, you know, somebody like Secretary Raffensperger and say, look what can be done if we as a party just kind of move in this more pragmatic, uh, you know, direction on these things and don't kind of give in to some of these impulses of the more extreme parts of our base. Yeah, one of my observations around the time of my primary was don't feed the tiger because it'll still eat you if, if you do. And we've made a decision from day one. We're not going to be bought in uh, to this uh, stuff on the fringe and let it let it call our tune and constantly try to, to feed the tiger. Uh, and I've got colleagues in other states who uh, ran to my right and tried to placate folks and they still got eaten. They still lost their primaries. As far as I know, I'm the first Republican secretary of state. Uh, since 2020, who's had a closed primary and won. I've had uh, some fallen colleagues since then. And I think they all made the mistake of trying to placate uh, folks instead of educate folks. We got another question from our audience. It's from Pat McPherson uh, from Pennsylvania. He asks, what is the biggest threat to the integrity of Kentucky's electoral process in 2024? Well, I think the integrity is pretty nailed down. Uh, we've got excellent county clerks. We did have a lot of attrition among our county clerk community. There are frontline election officials at the local level. We had a highly unusual number of them uh, retire in 2022. They just couldn't take the stress of the job. Uh, it's it's a really tough job. 
uh, the people that ran for that uh, in 2022 to succeed those folks, uh, the vast, vast majority of them were election directors in the clerk's office or deputy clerks, so they're highly qualified. So we really dodged a bullet in my state by having a good class of people run for these offices, trained people, reasonable, practical people. That was kind of my biggest concern. Uh, it's not that we'd have a, a lack of integrity, but we just have a, a learning curve to learn how to run these elections at the local level. So we really dodged that bullet. I really don't have any major concerns about the integrity of the election. I do have concerns about the access to the polls uh, for the reasons I stated. Uh, and, and part of that is ensuring that we have enough physical locations and poll workers for election day. But another part of it is pushing the early voting. Uh, we've only had 15 to 20 percent of our voters use the early voting uh, each of the last few years. I feel like if we can push more of our turnout to those earlier days, it'll be a smoother process for everybody. And so part of what we're going to be doing this year is is paid media to remind voters it's available, it's secure, and encourage them to take advantage of it. In advance of your primary um, last year, you told NBC uh, News, on a personal level, I won't be that disappointed if I lose. I kind of miss private life. This has been a really, really hard job. When I ran, I didn't think I was gonna get death threats. I thought I was gonna push a bunch of papers around. Uh, you've got the job for four more years. You've been outspoken before on things that you know a lot of Republicans aren't talking about, but do you feel even more freed up now? Like you can uh, you know, say what's on your mind even more than you did before. And, and to the extent you do feel freed up, what are you looking to do in the rest of your uh, second term as Secretary of State? Uh, well, I, number one, I don't really uh, feel any freer. Uh, uh, and one reason for that is we've had a lot of transition in our legislature, and I've, I've had great relations with the people that were there when I took office in both parties. A lot of them have left, and I've got new people coming in who weren't here in 2020, didn't know what we uh, dealt with and what we survived. And so I do have some people who are a little more aggressive on on trying to reverse our gains on uh, on voter access from the last few years. And so I, I can't really I can't really rest on my laurels. I've still got to keep at it, messaging and explaining what we're doing uh, and why. I don't really feel that liberated. I still have uh, really all the same sorts of challenges in the next four years that I've had in the last four. Unfortunately, Secretary Adams, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Um, thanks so much for joining us and for giving us your insights on what's happening in your home state and nationally. You got it. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.